overall, I would say parrots are cleverer uh, and they're more involved than dogs and cats. I mean, the other thing I would say, if you've got a really sick bird, if you're a vet, do everything at once. So sometimes the worst thing you can do is you, you decide to give it an antibiotic, so you handle it, give it an antibiotic, and then you change your mind and you want to give it some fluids as well, so you handle it and give it some fluids. Then you want to do some x-rays and a blood test. You handle it to do all of that. And by the time you've actually dealt with it, you've handled it five or six times if you include your examination at the beginning and your handling to get it into its, its enclosure in the clinic. Actually, you're better off handling it once to examine it, having a conversation with the owner, and then handling it once more to give it everything. Hello, I'm veterinarian Dr. Brian Gregor from New Zealand, and in this episode of the Vet Podcast, I again chat to UK exotic vet Benjamin Kennedy, who you may have heard me talk to in previous episodes about, amongst other things, keeping invertebrates, those creepy crawly critters, as pets, and how to tell if a spider is sick. We've also chatted about other exotic pets like snakes and lizards. This time, we talk about birds, both how to keep them, and for the vets, tips and tricks to help you examine and treat them. Are you a veterinarian dreaming about working down under in New Zealand? If so, I'd love to help you make that dream come true. Hi, I'm Julie South of VetStaff. VetStaff is New Zealand's only recruitment agency specialising in the Kiwi veterinary sector. We can help you find your dream job down under, from short-term locum assignments through to permanent employment and residency. Because we know God's own Aotearoa New Zealand like the back of our hands, we can match your career aspirations with a clinic that'll suit you best. Whether you're planning to work here for a few months or forever, if it's got anything to do with working in a vet clinic in New Zealand, we can help. Vetstaff.co.nz You are listening to The Vet Podcast, presented by veterinarian Dr. Brian Greger from New Zealand. Join us as we discuss pet health issues from around the world. Welcome back, Benjamin. Great to talk again. Now, I would be guessing that birds have been kept as pets for ages. Yeah, you would be right. There have been recordings of birds being kept as pets since since ancient antiquity and by the Babylonians and the Egyptians and others. So they've, they've been in our society in some way or another for thousands of years. They are a very old pet. When I think of birds as pets, I tend to think about canaries and budgies and parrots, but I've got a feeling that my perception may be just a little bit narrowed here. Yeah, for sure. Probably one of the most common birds I see is actually the humble chicken. I certainly see turkeys as well. There's a lot of backyard poultry sort of like systems with quail as well. But also you have some people who keep ostriches, emus and other large ratites even. And and it's not just parrots. Falcons uh, and eagles also get kept. Also owls and even things as exotic as toucans I've seen kept before so it's really quite a lot of diversity I think parrots are probably one of the most common but even within parrots it's not just one parrot there there are at least a half dozen if not two dozen species being kept domestically in the UK and beyond I think so it's it's much more diverse than I think people realize 
When we're looking at pets, one of the things that goes with pets is that we like to think that they've got a personality, whether we're being, here's this lovely term again, anthropomorphic or not. We discussed it with things like stick insects and a stick insect's personality previously. Now, when you've got a cat, a cat has got a personality, a dog has got a personality. I always get the impression that parrots have got a personality, but are they like their speech? Are they mimicking a personality or are they actually personable? I think they're actually personable. Um, I would say to be controversial, they're more personable in some ways than dogs and cats are because I think overall I would say parrots are cleverer uh, and they're more involved than dogs and cats. I think a parrot really has a very sophisticated brain uh, and it's able to deal with a lot of information. And I think you, you often hear it said that a parrot's the equivalent of a three to five-year-old in terms of its intelligence and how much it's interacting with you. And I think that's very true. I'd say that, if anything, more they've got more personality there. There's probably quite a bit of the anthropomorphizing, but there's certainly a great deal of intelligence in a parrot. And even in small birds, I think, there have been some fascinating experiments on on corvids. So corvid is a crow, by the way, as me being overly scientific. They are incredibly intelligent. Their, their problem solving is is amazing. So in, in my opinion, I think they're probably a level beyond dogs and cats. Again, if we compare cats and dogs as pets with keeping birds, as far as the housing goes, dogs are easy. You might have a kennel, but they probably sleep in the corner on a blanket. The cat will sleep on the bed. What do we need to think about for housing for your pet bird? So uh, it sort of becomes a theme of, the, of my, my answers, but it really depends on the species. In truth, I think it depends a lot on where you are. I think you know they have very specific uv requirements so you might need uv lighting especially if you're in a temperate you know country like the uk and to a lesser extent new zealand they require a reasonable amount of heat and humidity and they require a special diet i mean the other thing that's also not often talked about is they require social interaction ideally with their own species and they require a significant amount of space. I mean, there's often this this impression that you keep a parrot in a, a reasonable sized cage, but really they, they need an aviary. And the other thing that often gets forgot, forgotten, so my father keeps birds, and he he won't keep parrots because his aviary it, it its wiring is is too is too small that a parrot would just chew through it. So that actually they need quite a bespoke heavy duty aviary else they'll just escape so they, they require quite a lot you briefly mentioned sunlight and uv light i take it that without a doubt this is necessary for countries which don't have a lot of sunlight what about places like new zealand and australia where we get a lot of sunshine here do we need to supplement with ultraviolet light here uh you definitely do the other thing to bear in mind, even in New Zealand, a lot of parrots that are based in jungles are, are based in jungle canopies. So actually they're sometimes 50, 70 plus feet up. So they, they get large amounts of UV. So even in a, even in domestic situations, because obviously 
you're not in a house on the top of a a, a jungle camp uh, canopy. So I, I would say the problems you, you get if you don't are metabolic bone disease. So UV, as in reptiles, as in humans, is required for, for the absorption of vitamin D and calcium. So if you don't have UV, you don't have calcium, and eventually you get diseases secondary to that. So you get hypocalcemia, so not enough calcium, and then your bones become more brittle and you get diseases secondary to that. So you also get reproductive diseases because they end up making monster eggs or impartial eggs because they don't have the calcium necessarily to make that egg perfectly. This is going to be one of these questions that's going to get answered with what's now become a classic Benjaminism, if you like. It depends on the species. But here we go anyway, Benjamin. Tell me about nutrition in birds. So I think this is one of those really interesting nerd bits of avian medicine because it's incredibly deep. In truth, I think you've hit the nail on the, on the head, perhaps more than you realise, because different parrot species have as different diets from each other as, as different mammalian species. You wouldn't feed a cat what you would feed a dog, what you would feed a raccoon. And and actually, it it's fascinating when you go into it because – Parrots in particular, some are more nut eaters, others are more fruit eaters, others are insectivorous. Cockatoos, for instance, there are some cockatoo species that eat grubs. So the biggest problem you you have is giving purely seed-based diets to parrots. And that's not necessarily because seeds are bad, because some parrots eat seeds and nuts almost exclusively. The the problem is that parrots can't self-regulate everything as beautifully as as you might imagine and and really one of the big problems we as owners and as vets have is we oversimplify this problem a lot of people will recommend a compounded pellet based diet for parrots because you you avoid a lot of these problems but even that actually isn't really imperfect solution because the other thing we we get again forget is that parrot is like a three or five year old it you, know, you need to convert that parrot to that diet. It requires a lot of work and a, it really is a behavioral challenge. So I'm talking, we're talking about diets, I'm talking all about behavior. It's quite counterintuitive, but really find out what your species has in the wild and try and work something from there. Because you'd be surprised how often parrots need fruit or leaves or something. You don't. You, you. We all imagine this muesli mix or a a pellet mix, and a lot of generic advice given by vets, rightly, is that we should switch parrots to pellets. And actually, it's it's not very helpful advice by itself because even if your parrot has pellets, a lot of these pellets have been based more on the poultry industry, where we are basing the amount of calories that that bird is getting on growth rates and chickens and and turkeys probably more than we would like to realize and actually you need to supplement that with something that really fulfills multiple roles so you need your diet is also your enrichment it's also your behavior it's also how you get your bird to interact with its environment so it's it's so much more deep but i guess my advice would be pellets is a good, good good way to go have a plan in place it needs to be a pellets with a plan so we need pellets with a plan. We should easily be able to get the pellets. Where do we go for the plan? 
where do you go for the plan? Where do you go for the plan? Uh, a lot of it has to be your own research, I think, from reputable sources. I think, you know, Lefebvre has some great resources for diets. I think your local exotic vet is a great place to go. I think your local parrot society is also a great place to go. I think actually just grabbing your species, by finding out your species and finding out more about your species. If you've got an African grey, you want to learn everything about African greys in the wild. And that will, t- that will give you a big, big hint. Certainly seeds alone, I'm not, I don't, I'm not going to be, a, I don't think seeds are evil, but seeds alone are not a good diet at all. I'm actually having visions of the Monty Python parrot sketch in my head at the moment, Benjamin. So I guess this is aging me a little bit. How can you tell if your bird is sick or if it's just pining for the fields? Yeah, the Monty Python sketch is great. I put it in all of my, uh, so so many of my lectures have that particular sketch of John Cleese and a dead parrot. You know what the depressing thing is, Brian, that, 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 that increasingly we're having less and less people know what it is. So I've had like a student come in and they're in their 20s and they don't know what the dead parrot sketch is and I'm, I'm crying deep inside. So everybody look up John Cleese's dead parrot sketch. You won't regret it. I think... One of the big problems with birds is they are very good at masking their clinical signs. They're very good at masking disease. So one of the big surprising things is a bird comes in and it's been all right the night before. So sometimes it's very difficult to tell if they're sick. I would say even more so sometimes than invertebrates. I think my adage, you know, pretend it's a dog or cat. If you imagine a dog or cat is sick and the parrot's doing the same thing, it's a good, good way to go. I think... As you get to know your parrot, I think looking at its feed intake, I think looking at the way it moves and breathes is one of the most important things. So birds tend to fluff up. And once you've seen it a few times, you can see that a bird is sick. Look at a bird when no one else is looking at it. So I think this is where webcams are beautiful, wonderful things. Or a mirror put around a corner, because a bird will often make itself look more well than it is when it's in a situation where it's even remotely a tiny bit stressful. And, and that can even be in its home environment. When its owner is around, it might put on a particularly brave face, but only, it's only when you see it around a corner that you see how bad it really is. So o- often they've masked so well that whatever disease process is going on has been going on for several weeks at least, or if not months. So the typical presentation I get tends to be quite dramatic. Because the majority of owners, quite rightly, because owners aren't vets, they're not bird stockmen. It tends to be a bird that's on the on, on the bottom of its enclosure, it's breathing hard, it's having difficulty moving around, it can move if it's interacted with. That bird is very, very sick by that point. So it's it's a huge challenge. It's a huge challenge. And a lot of it's just knowing birds really well. Um, a lot of it's good stockmanship. I know that sounds odd. But that's, that's the, you know, if I had to give any advice, it's really learning about birds and learning about your species and learning about your animal. And then you'll be able to see if it's sick or not. So what then is the difference with looking after the health of a bird or two birds in your cage, your canary, your, your budgie in the cage, and larger flocks of birds? You know, if you've got an aviary with a number of birds in them, or even, I suppose, if you go to your to your chicken farms and your turkey farms, you look at them differently? Yes and no. 
so I, I actually have the privilege of coming from a turkey farming family. So I've been in those big old sheds and seen a thousand birds. And I've also had the privilege of, of you know, dealing with smaller aviary like systems and all the way down to single birds. I think a lot of it, certainly from a vet perspective, each situation is quite different. So I deal with a lot of variation in, in avian keepers, you know, avian owners. I, from, I, I have dealt with a farmer, not very much as a vet, but I have dealt with a farmer that has a thousand of them. You know, a few birds dying or a few birds having an issue. Often the solution is actually to PM the birds and find out if there's anything more worrying or whether that's part of a standard loss per year and you know that that's within your, within your tolerances all the way down to single bird with that single bird as that person's beloved pet you know if even if it's even a slight bit sick you know that is something very serious and you're, you're using different forms of investigation because obviously in a single bird perspective we are using anesthesia we are getting x-rays we are taking blood you know we are trying to get data about that singular bird as when you're dealing with a thousand birds your birds are data points and actually you use things like post-mortem so as, and you know you have that bit in between. So I have chicken owners where they have one bird or two birds, and they are pets. And then I have chicken owners who have fifty birds or twenty birds or even five birds, and they're quite pragmatic. And actually, the conversation really depends on what the owner is and what the owner feels. I've I've certainly done that situation where I've got a backyard pouch keeper where they have chickens. And I've offered postmortems to them, and that's been a very helpful tool. I've equally had that situation with a chicken where I've done all the the bells and whistles, anaesthesia, bloods, you know, endoscopy, everything. What I'll often do before I record these podcasts is put a post on our social media, just asking our followers if there's anything that they would like me to ask the guests. Just as an aside, if you do want to follow us on social media, just search for Vet Podcast in any of the social media channels. Anyway, we've got a reply from Kyle Kansman, who is a vet student in the United States. He is also a podcaster. He produces and he presents a podcast called Walk on the Wild Side Veterinary Podcast, which is well worth having a listen to. Now, it just happens that his last episode featured another exotic vet called Nikki Rosenhagen, and the topic was avian orthopedics. So that's actually well worth having a listen to. What Kyle asks is, what are the top three diseases you see in citizens, which are the parrots, and how do you approach those cases? I think it's uh, it's always a difficult question to answer because there's always so much more than three. Probably the top things really, really broadly are your standards, things that bring anybody into a vet, your, your trauma cases, you know, your cases where the bird's flown into something or has fallen down or been interacted with quite harshly, you've got to deal with that. Probably other things, I would say obesity or, or problems secondary to nutrition are really high up there. I think a lot of them are ultimately about nutrition. So a lot of these birds are kept on seed-based diets. Uh, it's becoming less of a thing as time goes on. You've got that classic presentation of feather plucking, which is a lot more common than I think we realise, and is a lot more complex than I think we realise. I think you also have diseases of reproduction as well and behaviour almost, because a lot of these birds are kept by themselves and they're flock animals, and they get very confused and they got, get quite strangely bonded to their owners. So it's all a whole spectrum and it's all quite involved with itself, because 
all three of those, you know, all four of those problems, reproduction, your trauma, your uh, diet and your obesity and your other things, they're all actually related. They all, they all correlated with each other. As to how I approach them, I think parrot consultations tend to be longer. They tend to be more complex than a typical dog-cat consultation because I think there's a lot, of, a lot more subtlety in how they're kept and there's a lot more behaviour typically than you would have in a dog or cat. So, for instance, feather plucking is, is as complicated as skin and skin is very complicated to the non-vets and you know, the, any owner that's had an animal or any person that's had a skin problem knows instantly it's more complicated than just, you're not just diagnosing one thing, you're diagnosing three, five or ten things. So that feather plucking conversation is an hour long. It requires a lot of detail. So probably my biggest thing is to find holistic solutions. It's not always about, you know, I think it is about doing diagnosis to find out what's going on it's not always necessarily about medical treatment actually it's more about trying to find out how that owner can change the situation to allow that bird to have a better quality of life so it's much more holistic i would say than you might expect common conditions there's so many you know different species and actually every different species even in parrots has its own problems in truth, and some birds are more susceptible than others. So Amazons, for instance, are very susceptible to uh, obesity and therefore hepatic disease. So that's liver disease to the you know, non-vets listening and to all the pet owners listening. But, but African greys, if they don't have their UV, very susceptible to hypocalcemia, i.e. not enough calcium. So it's very species-specific as well. I hope that answers the question for uh, Kyle. Now, this is a situation that most vets that have had anything to do with treating birds have come across where you put your hand in the cage, you bring the bird out and it throws its head back and it either dies or tries to die on you. Can we have a look at, firstly, how do we go about handling them and examining them? And do we actually even need to get them out of the cage? In truth, I, I tend to examine these birds quickly. Uh, and I have a very robust, non-faffy clinical exam that has been well-practiced. I think I always warn owners, not always, but pretty much most of the time, I warn owners, if I've got a bird that's remotely sick, I tell them that bird is very sick. And I tell them about this possibility. And most bird owners who've been keeping birds for more than five minutes will know that this is something that can happen, because they've they probably had it happen to themselves Birds, when they get stressed, get very stressed, and they can die due to the handling. Not It really depends on how used the, used the bird is to handling, how sick it is, and how, lots of other things. I would say if you've got a bird that you're remotely worried about, pre-oxygenate it first before handling it. I think not handling is very rarely an option, because certainly if somebody's taken the trouble to take a bird to a clinic, which is already very stressful. You know, you've got to try and weigh it to, to give it anything. You've got to try and find out what's going on. If the owner isn't willing to make that risk, you need to have that conversation with the owner. But actually, if, if someone's brought it to the clinic, the stress has already occurred. 
So I think you, you have to do something. You, you at least have to really consider your options because you can't not do something at that stage. I think if someone's calling you up, you know, perhaps that's a different conversation. You know, my advice would be have a slightly darkened environment if you can. Have a towel. Please have a towel. Towels are beautiful. Towels are wonderful things. Oxygenate. Do it quickly. Have a clear priority set in your head for what you need to find out about this animal so a distance exam is crucial and a good history from the owner is crucial because you need to really peg down what bits of clinical information you need so you know remember a clinical exam is not there just to get you get you looking at the animal it's there to get you clinical information so you need to prioritize exactly what you need so you go in there you get your clinical information and you stop. And I think, you know, ideally a clinical exam takes less than a few minutes, even that. And the other thing to bear in mind is if you've got an animal that's particularly stressful, actually, I know this sounds crazy, uh, just anaesthetize it. Anaesthetize it and you might, you know, if you're trying to do things with a stressed animal, an anaesthesia, you know, with, with a stressed bird, anaesthesia is, is safer it is actually safer. I think a lot of people think, oh my gosh, if I anaesthetize this very, very sick bird, it's going to die. And the truth is, no, it won't. Actually, anaesthetizing that bird will mean it will be under less stress because it won't be conscious of you handling it. It's probably more likely to live. So I think that's probably one of the other things. If you've got a bird that's so sick that you handling it for a minute or two is going to kill it, actually, and the stress is involved in that, then actually that anaesthesia might actually be your way of getting that clinical information in a more safe manner, especially if you're trying to get bloods, trying to get bloods from a conscious bird. I think it's very doable, very doable. But if it's a very, very sick bird, actually, certainly if you're charging for anaesthesia, you may find actually the owner is better accepting they've got to pay for an anaesthesia and the bird will be more likely to get out of it alive than you trying to force a situation which is not good for you or the bird. You've actually preempted my next question here, Benjamin. I was going to ask you about anesthesia, so obviously we can. I would be assuming probably guess anesthesia would be the way to go. Not always, not always. Um, isoflurane or sebofluorine is great. I love it. Uh, for birds, uh, intranasal benzodiazepines, so intranasal midazolam, I think it's also an option, and I think it's often underutilized. I really like. I'm, I'm not going to tell tell people doses, uh, doses over the internet because this is the internet. But I really like that for a, you know handling or a, a quick blood sample or something of that variation for a large parrot. Some intranasal midazolam after a very quick 30 second handling to get you know the, the nose open is a very good alternative. Uh, so it's, it's not just gaseous anesthesia. There are other forms. Uh, and certainly, again, if I'm going to be doing something proper, that isn't just to get some x-rays and a uh, blood sample, you know, I might consider doing some form of pre-medication as well. I, you know, probably with an opioid or a benzodiazepine or combination of the two. Just another quick comment while we're talking about the examination. One of the things that used to stick in my craw when I was seeing a few birds in, in my practice was people having a spring clean before they bring the animal in. They'll, they'll bring the bird in in the cage and it's got new newspaper in the bottom 
and everything looks squeaky clean. How much do you take into account what the cage is actually looking like, what the what the droppings are like? Well, I think it depends on the bird. I think droppings are useful because if you have droppings which are more green or more stained or not as formed, I think lots of birds have very liquidy poods and they will because they, they use uric acid instead of urea. They, they, they also urinate and defecate out of the same hole essentially. So I don't often give credence to watery poos. I do give credence to unusual poos. So certainly birds with hepatic disease, so liver disease, have different sorts of poo to other birds. I'm often thinking quite carefully about sending poo off. I actually think in most situations, a blood sample and an x-ray is much more helpful. And sometimes it's very tempting to send off a a fecal sample because you've got it, rather than actually thinking about what clinical information you from an economic point of view, what clinical information you need to get, you need to get. It might be better to spend your money on something else for, for the owner than it is to do a fecal sample. I do find it quite interesting when you've got a more soiled container, a more soiled enclosure, because that's also telling you something about how the bird is kept. If, if you know, Even if it is squeaky clean, I think if you've got a large... You know, so sometimes people will bring the actual enclosure that their birds are kept in most of the time in, and looking at that enclosure, you can begin to see that lifestyle of that bird. Because, you know, birds are built to fly. They are flying creatures. They do not have the same lifestyle if they are... They have quite a sedentary lifestyle, in truth. And quite a boring lifestyle if they're just in the smallest enclosure their entire lives. So, talking to the owner, you can sometimes infer what's actually going on. You know, if you've got a large parrot that's in one cage one little cage its whole life and it doesn't come out of that cage and it's not in an aviary system you're going to see problems associated with that as if you've got a bird that's in a flock situation where they've got multiple birds around them they're in a large aviary so they can properly fly around that bird's going to have overall less problems a lot less problems because you're not going to have the same issue so often the lifestyle the enclosure is telling me more about that that bird than you you know necessarily what the what the actual bedding is like or what the poo is looking like just talking about the bottom of the cage is actually just made me think about situations that i got in in practice probably one of the more common trauma situations that i saw with these birds and it's mainly with the, the really small birds the, the canaries in particular is when the owner decides that the bottom of the cage is dirty it's got too much seed in, and they put the vacuum cleaner in there and suck out the um the the little bits of seed in there and the canary disappears down the vacuum cleaner so it's an absolute plea is please don't use your vacuum cleaner to clean the bottom of your canary or to clean the bottom of any bird's cage because underneath the feathers they're not particularly big and they will go down they will go down a uh, vacuum cleaner pipe so um take that for what it's worth it should be said all of the bird owners out there you should finger train or hand train your birds so they can go onto your hand and actually if you're going to clean the cage think of a guinea pig or a rabbit you wouldn't necessarily, if you're doing a deep clean, you wouldn't necessarily want the guinea pig there because you presumably want to use something to actually clean it with. And obviously you're going to use something animal safe. So ideally, 
you should hand train. So that, that means you're training your bird to go on your hand or onto your arm and, and stay on your arm. You know, that can be done for parrots, that can be done for birds. And actually that's ideal because if a vet needs to examine that bird, it needs to be used to hands. Or if anybody needs to do anything with the bird, it needs to be used to actually being handled. So ideally your bird should be handleable such that you can clean its cage without it being in the cage. So I think if you're struggling, you've got to ask yourself how you need to reapproach your bird to make that a thing, I would say. I've also seen those sorts of, it's, it's quite scary how easily you can get hurt. Mm. You've alluded to it previously, Benjamin, when we were talking about the anesthesia, is drug administration. Now, I would imagine that probably most of the modalities of medication that we give to cats, dogs, cows, horses, you can give to birds, you can give them pills, you can give them anesthetic, you can give them injections. Yeah, very much so. I think there are some big differences. I think birds tend to metabolise things much more quickly than uh, cats and dogs. So it's really important to have a good, good formula to your hand, either the BSAVA, exotic formulary or carpenter's formulary or a, a good exotic formulary that you've come across yourself and look up the dose before you give any drug, I would say. Um, the classic one is amox, uh, amoxiclav, so amoxicillin clavonic acid, which is also called sinuloxin claviceptin. It, it's one of the most common antibiotics in humans and all vets. Its dose in, in most birds is 10 times that of a cat or dog. So, so you're giving a, a large dog tablet to a parrot it seems a bit wrong but you need to actually have checked the dose and you need to know that just to be reassured parrots take tablets remarkably easily they've got a crop they don't vomit it up as as much as you necessarily would expect once you've got it in it's in some parrots will actually take it out of your hand if you're lucky but you can certainly give them injections. You can give them subcutaneous injections into basically where they're, they're inguinal, they're in a thigh area. You can give them you know, intramuscular injections into their breasts. And there's plenty of places to get blood from as, from, as well. So, How do you give fluids? Is, is that given intraosseously into the bone? You can do, do intraosseous. I tend to only really do that in emergency situations in particularly small birds, I tend to mostly give subcutaneous, again, into that area, basically in the inner thigh. Again, you know, if you're a vet, I'd recommend you don't, you know, you, you, you look it up and you find out where, but it's quite simple to do. I think it, you can do it conscious. Obviously, it's a stressful thing to do. I mean, the other thing I would say, if you've got a really sick bird, if you're a vet, or, you know, not if you're a pet owner, because you're hopefully not doing this, but if you're a vet and you've got a sick bird, do everything at once so sometimes the worst thing you can do is you you decide to give it an antibiotic so you handle it give it an antibiotic and then you change your mind and you want to give it some fluids as well so you handle it and give it some fluids then you want to do some x-rays and a blood test you handle it to do all of that and by the time you've actually dealt with it you've handled it five or six times if you include your examination at the beginning and your handling to get it into its its enclosure in the clinic. Actually, you're better off handling it once to examine it, having a conversation with the owner, and then handling it once more to give it everything that you would want to give it. So it's better to do less and do more than it is to do more over little, because actually that those increasing amounts of stress is worse, I would say. So 
when we're thinking about drug administration, we've really got to think about what we're doing in terms of the stress benefit. Because if you've already done a load of things with this bird, it may be better to give it a few hours and then give something rather than to try and keep handling it, if that makes any sense. Can we just finish off? Let, let's have a, a quick talk about surgery. Now, Kyle and his podcast has mentioning avian orthopaedics, so obviously we can do surgery on birds. Is there any differences with the surgery in birds? I mean, we know we can anaesthetise them, so that's fine. Anatomical differences, a bird's a bird or a bird's an animal. How do we go about things? I think, I think again, compared to invertebrates, uh, birds are remarkably similar, if I have to be honest. And actually, again, one of my editors for life, more often things are more similar than we, we give them credit for. Uh, I would say big differences, they have uh, air sacs. So a lot of bird is air. They have pneumatic bones. Uh, you know, they don't have a diaphragm necessarily in the same way. So one of the things we can do in birds is endoscopy. So we can actually, an endoscope in a bird is so much more valuable than an endoscope in a, in a mammal. So if you've got endoscopy to hand or if you're an owner looking for advanced diagnostics, actually using an endoscope. So an endoscope is a, a camera at the end of, you either have a rigid endoscope, which is a camera at the end of a metal rod, or a flexible endoscope, which is a flexible camera. Just one of those things, when you ever hear of a colonoscopy, basically what's happened is a camera is going into your digestive system. And actually those that technology is incredibly valuable with birds. Endoscopy can allow you to visualise the organs directly and even do interventions with organs directly and that is a huge deal when you really think about it when you think about what we're trying to do with blood with, with a blood test all a blood test is trying to do is it's trying to tell us what's going on with that organ via a, you know, essentially for a, a disconnected blood value uh, and ultrasound and x-rays are trying to get us a essentially an image of organs as an endoscope you can actually see the organ in front of you and you can sample it via a biopsy so that capacity to go into a bird because they're all air sacs you can actually go in there and you can visualize uterus you can visualize liver you can visualize kidney guts you know even heart base you know, everything is actually quite amazing and we have that capacity i would say to a greater extent we we would in in, the, in uh, dogs and cats because you need lots of other things in dogs and cats i.e you need you know to actually fill up the the abdominal cavity with air is in birds it's practically already done from that perspective i'd say some of our surgical abilities are greater i think again it's always limited by the anesthesia i think the anesthesia is more complicated because of those air sacs as well that's why you have so many spikes and, and drops in anesthesia in birds because actually you're not just anesthetizing some lungs you're not just getting the anesthetic into the lungs you're also getting into all of the connected air sacs as well i think orthopedic surgery in birds is it's more than doable. It's quite possible. I think it really requires a deep understanding of what's going on. So a avian orthopedics is fascinating. It's very complicated stuff. Uh, and it really requires you to really know what's happening. Because if you get it wrong, you, you get it spectacularly wrong. And the nature of their, their bones mean that it's not as simple a fix necessarily as a cat or dog. So I'm always quite careful. I mean, the other thing to bear in mind 
certainly one of the situations that you get when you're you're at the beginning of your exotic journey as a vet is you get lots of wildlife and sometimes it can be tempting to pursue orthopedic surgery orthopedic solutions in wildlife and i would i'd probably if i was to give any advice to owners and vets i would say because i think sometimes with any wildlife there's usually somebody who's really trying to want to do lots of stuff with that so if you've got wildlife you need a very very good plan before you pursue anything orthopedic so that classic situation is a bird with a broken wing and actually more more often than not certain wing breaks are quite fixable and if you have a pet bird you might pursue it but in a wild bird it's a real ask of that animal so it's not always something that is as doable as you might want so you've got to be quite careful before pursuing that situation because it can become quite a difficult situation if that bird does not get on well with handling or does not get on well with the actual procedure it can be a very difficult situation one thing that i've noticed and this is probably often an absolute tangent here but when i'm stuffing a chicken i notice that the skin peels apart really easily like it it's, it doesn't it doesn't seem like normal mammalian skin but again when i was in practice we did see a number of birds come in that did have skin tears so how do we deal with with those sort of wounds in in birds yeah, one of the common things I come across is, is skin wounds for, for all sorts of reasons, fights with other birds, your, your dog somehow gets hold of your parrot, uh, you know, a parrot gets itself trapped or, or a bird gets itself trapped. Um, the skin of, of birds is very thin. It's a few cells thick, so it's not like mammalian skin. So stitching it together isn't as much of an option. And often you leave a lot of these things to heal by themselves in a very messy fashion with antibiotic coverage, or you, you do dressings as opposed to trying to stitch it together. So that's one of the other differences when you're you know, actually doing surgery is you, you, do, you, you obviously try and close skin if you're doing a proper salonic surgery, but actually the way it heals is quite different, I would say. One of the things that I've always had in my mind dealing with birds is that that they've actually got a body temperature which is warmer than most most of the other mammals that we deal with has that got much of an effect or any effect on what we do with the treatment and what diseases are susceptible to uh i would say overall no um i think i think it is something you've got to consider when you're doing a surgery because i think you know, what would be a normal temperature in a dog or cat under a surgery would be quite terrifying for a bird because it's losing a lot of temperature. So I think active warming is is more important. I think being aware of, of what its temperature is is very important. I, again, you, it's, you just have to view it as it's normal. I think this is one of the reasons that birds metabolise drugs so much more quickly because they are metabolising things. They've got a greater metabolism for the most part than we do so i think that perspective is also important i think often drugs will be out of a bird system where they would have been in a yeah, dog or cat system for actually a long time so i think that's one of the big differences in terms of disease um i'm sure that the fact that they run hotter 
means that certain diseases that they're susceptible are adapted to that temperature as other diseases are not so i'm sure it has an effect on the microbiomics of that animal but i think actually you've got the same variations anyway i think things that are just you know that cause disease for birds cause disease for birds regardless of whether they run hot or not benjamin thank you once again for taking the time to talk to us just before you go it's the same question that i ask you every time where do vets and where do owners go for more information so a good place for birds, I would say, is the Association of Avian Veterinarians, uh, which is a good organisation to join. It is a international organisation. So, you know, people from New Zealand will be more than welcome. I think people from the States will be more than welcome and beyond. Uh, I think uh, the, if you're in the UK or in a Commonwealth country, I think the British Veterinary Zoological Society is a good society to join to get more information about exotic medicine generally. I think if you're a general practice vet or an owner, calling up your local vet and asking for a recommendation as to where to go is a good idea. I think your local exotic vet is a great source of information. And I think certainly in my experience, uh, if a general, if a GP vet calls me up and wants some advice, I'll give it to them because I think rather than have somebody drive two or three hours to come see me, if they can drive 20 minutes to see another vet and actually that bird gets its solution and it's well within that vet's capabilities, I'm happy to help. And I know a lot of vets have that opinion. I think at a push, your local zoological veterinarian can also be a source of information because obviously your local zoo will be dealing with lots of these more exotic more weird and wonderful birds depending on what country you're in so they can be a good place to go certainly for information i think as far as sources of information current therapy and avian uh, medicine and surgery or harrison's avian medicine tends to be where i i jump to textbook wise so uh, there also there's the Faber's lectures are incredibly helpful for this sort of thing. They give you a lot of information very quickly. Benjamin, once again, thank you very, very much for finding the time to talk to us. And that's it for another episode of the Vet Podcast. All of our links are in one place at beacons.ai slash vetpodcast. That is B-E-A-C-O-N-S dot A-I slash vetpodcast. And while you're there, don't forget to buy us a coffee. On behalf of me, Brian Greger, and everybody else involved in the making of this podcast, thanks for listening and we'll catch you again soon.